What's up, everyone? I hope you are doing fantastic tonight. It is Wednesday, February 24th, and this is Raphael Garcia here with Sean Humes for episode 196 of the MMA Ratings podcast. We'll be talking Derek Lewis, Canelo Alvarez, and some other topics. But before we do, Sean, how are you doing there, sir? Oh, good as always. Just staying busy. Not as busy as you, staying busy. Has it defrosted down there yet? Yeah, it's almost like it never happened, to be honest. What was the temperature today? Oh, uh, 78? Yeah, but we, we're, we're going to keep arguing that. Was it climate change isn't real, huh? I guess still not real yet. It's hard to make that argument. <laughs> Let's go ahead and dive into today's show. But before we do, uh, thank you to everyone who takes the time to check out our content. We always appreciate all of those that show support. You can find us across multiple platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, and Spotify. You can also check us out over on YouTube at MMA Ratings Net and MMA Ratings Net on Instagram and Twitter. I am on both spaces as rgarcia underscore sports, and you can find Shawan at Black Jordan Green. But you know what? Curtis Blaze could not find his consciousness on Saturday when Derek Lewis caught him with a counter uppercut in the second round to finish him off in the main event of UFC Vegas. I think it was 20, 19, 20, whatever number it was. But, Shawan, what did you think of that win there? Was it... Again, as we always talk about when it's Derek Lewis, is this more about what his opponents did as opposed to what Derek Lewis did? Like, what did you see there that really stood out to you? Well, it was a combination. Um, unfortunately for Curtis Blades, he's, he seemed to have a problem with that in-between range. He's one of those guys who either, to me, has a hard time mixing things up. He either is striking or he's wrestling. He doesn't transition from one to the other very good. I, to me, he doesn't shoot for a takedown, fake a takedown, then come over the top really well. He doesn't strike and beat you up and then go and transition to a takedown very well. He always seems to have a little bit of trouble transitioning, and he always seems to have problems in that mid-range, that mid-boxing range. That's where Nganu's knocked him out twice, and ultimately that's what led to him getting knocked out by Derrick Lewis. Um, it was predictable because Lewis is always known for timing guys and landing big shots. And another reason I thought it was predictable is because, as I said before, Blades is terrible at transitioning from striking to wrestling, wrestling to striking, and he's just he's just not very good in that boxing range. So anytime he's in that range, he's in danger. When he's far away, he's okay. When he's in close, he's pretty all right. But to get in close, you have to go through the boxing range. When you're not able to get a takedown or control somebody from the clinch or beat him up from the clinch, you've got to exit through the boxing range to get back to long range, which means not almost in – Everything he does, he's flirting with that boxing range because he's just not very good at staying outside using defensive footwork. He's not good enough with his strikes to keep you at a distance and keep you outside of that boxing range if you're trying to get to him. So it was like a danger zone for him, and he keeps flirting in that danger zone. He falls into it in every fight, and um, essentially he just he just fell into it. He he didn't set his he didn't set his takedown up very well. And if you watch the fight carefully, in the first round on two or three different occasions. Uh, he tried to go for a takedown and try to step into shots. And Derek Lewis almost had him time like 30 seconds into the fight. So it was just a matter of Derek Lewis finding his timing, waiting his time out, and then when the time came, just exploding and throwing every, everything behind one shot. And that's essentially what he did. Blade took a badly set up, t- set up a b- takedown badly, went for it, and walked right into a short uppercut. I mean... I, I talked to other fighters, talked to, excuse me, I'm not a fighter. I talked to fighters and they came with the same conclusion. They're like, man, I saw that coming from a mile away. You could just see it from round one. So if I could see it and fighters could see it. I don't see how maybe Blaze's team didn't see it at the time. And I don't see how Blaze didn't see it himself. He was just determined to wrestle. He's, the, he's told himself, I'm going to do whatever it takes to win. And um, he's just not good enough transitioning from those ranges to do that against Derek Lewis. That would have worked against anybody else. People like Derek Lewis and Francis Ngannou, who are counterpunchers and explosive ta- counterpunchers, that's going to get you knocked out every time. And every time he's faced these guys, he's been knocked out. Three times he's faced these guys, three times he's been stopped. I mean, the proof's pretty much, the blueprint to beating him is pretty clear from this point on. So are we, are we 
underestimating Derek Lewis because we frequently have this conversation where we talk about him and we make it seem like we're surprised that he has these moments in the cage. Are we underestimating? Are we underestimating him or not? I don't think so. I don't I don't think we are. Um, years ago, I would get started on another podcast, and I I basically spent twenty minutes telling people the genius of Derek Lewis. The thing about it is, he's not a very busy fighter as far as his volume. He's not very technical in the fact that he can throw combinations or efficiently and effectively throw a series of strikes. He basically under his him and his camp figured out what he's good at early. He's big. He's strong. He's tough. He's got good timing, and he hits very hard. So instead of them wasting energy, throwing volume, wasting energy, trying to teach him how to wrestle offensively or really defensively or teaching him how to throw a bunch of kicks and everything, they kept everything to a bare minimum, and they have they have him do everything off the counter because they know if he gets hit, he can take it. He can have you beating him up for five rounds and land one shot, and that's the equalizer. So he can always he's always willing to take a certain amount of abuse or get taken down and control because guys get greedy. He gets so easy to be taken down. Guys just keep doing the same takedown, and then they get away from setting it up, and they start getting sloppy, start getting lazy. And eventually, instead of securing position, he's able to power out of position. And the same thing on the feet. Guys will start hitting him, hitting him. It gets so easy. So instead of sticking at long range and chopping him up, all of a sudden now they want to flurry. All of a sudden now they want to close the show. They get greedy. They stay in one spot too long. He lands a big shot. It's been the majority of almost all his fights. Guys have been overwhelming him, and then they're sticking and moving. They're throwing a bunch of combinations. They're throwing a bunch of volume. And all of a sudden, they just stand still because they think he's almost ready to go. They stand still. He swings. They fall. So his his game plan is actually quite ingenious because it's based off his natural skills. It plays to his character as a person, and it takes full advantage of his physical tool, tool sets. They know who he is as a fighter, and they don't really dwell very far from that. So in actuality, the, the style and the strategy they have made up is not very technical. It's not very high class, but it is genius in its simplicity you stick to your fighter's character you stick to his physical tools you stick to teaching him what he needs to do teach him to master an approach or a style that allows to put him in position for success and that's what his team does his his fight i mean the kicks he throws are pretty basic the punches he throws are pretty basic he rarely throws in combination guys come at him they hit him they hit him they hit him he backs up the cage he opens up Guys take him down. They take him down, take him down. They get a little comfortable trying to ground and pound him. They overcommit. He powers out. Or they overcommit trying to finish the submission because he's so strong. So they have to, you know, put more torque on it. They overbalance themselves, get over their hips. The balance gets off. He powers up. And then he he explodes on him. It's been what he's done for years. And um, I'm actually very impressed with it. Like I said, it's not super technical. But strategically, it's genius. So where is his ceiling in this division? We've seen him fight for the title. He was slumped by um, Daniel Cormier a few years ago. Are we looking at a situation where he can maybe find himself in the title picture, or does he stand as maybe a potential uh, foil or a potential test for someone like a John Jones or something like that? Where does he sit in in this group? He's a test for everybody just based off physicality alone. Very few guys can consistently take him down for three or five rounds and win three or five rounds just taking him down. One, because his timing, eventually he he's going to get your timing because he's not afraid of getting beat up. He can take it to a certain degree, so he can t- he, and he's not afraid of getting taken down, so he'll risk it to throw a knee. I mean, that uppercut he threw, if he misses it, Blaze gets a takedown, and Blaze can mount him, pound him, take or just control him to win the second round. Then that's two rounds in the hole that Blaze has won. He's willing to take those. He's willing to get put in bad positions to do maximum damage. A lot of strikers, it's like submission people. A lot of, like in submissions, they want you to get position before you attempt submission because you might get finished, right? But sometimes those guys who just explode into a submission without position are even more dangerous because you can't. There's no structure to it. It's like you're winning and then you're losing because they're not going to let you get settled in. They're not going to let you comfortable. They'll throw off them whenever. Now if they miss, you can submit them easily. You can pound them out. If they get you, you're just done because you're caught in this transition. He's not afraid of that. So there's very few guys. There's very few guys in the heavyweight division who can take his shot. Clearly, he's beaten most of them. Most guys aren't good enough wrestlers, whether it's athleticism or actual skill and pace, to actually grind him out for five, three to five rounds. I mean, Daniel Cormier is pretty much the only guy who's done it. Most guys aren't good enough athletes 
or explosive enough in their shots to really put him away. Only like a very few guys have actually ever put him away. So the question is, you're asking me is, you know, is is there there are there a lot of heavyweights who can a out wrestle him for three to five rounds? Not the UFC. B hit hard enough to hurt him. There might be a few, but none of those guys can take the shots he has to go back. And and the one thing about fighting Derek Lewis is eventually you're going to get hit. He doesn't throw a lot of shots. He throws for efficiency and he throws for accuracy. He's going to get you at one point or another. It's just going to happen. And the question is, can you pitch as well as you catch? And the answer once again is no. I mean. John Jones would have a hard time with him. John Jones isn't hard to get to. Francis Ngannou has a hard time to get to him because they're both counterfighters, so they're both afraid of making a mistake, so that fight's just boring. But who else, who else do you really favor? Stipe could outbox him, but the Stipe I've seen, who's a step slow, looks a little ragged, doesn't take punishment as well, that guy might get, that guy, that might, guy might get caught once or twice in the whole fight, and all it takes is once or twice against Derrick Lewis, and the fight's over. So I think he's, he's even money against anybody in any organization, just based off the fact that he plays to a strategy that maximizes his tools and looks for big moments to win. That's all he does. He looks for big moments. He'll give up rounds to get the knockout. He'll let you win rounds as long as he's going to win the fight. He's fighting to win a fight. Other guys are winning to, are fighting to win rounds. There's a difference in what the, the logic goes into that. So he can lose a fight up until the last 10 seconds, knock you out, he won it. That was his goal. And if you win the fight every round, except the last 10 seconds of the fifth round or the third round, you've lost the fight. So you haven't accomplished your goal because for you to win, you have to win every single round. Most guys aren't capable technically and their corners aren't strategically aware enough for them to win round after round after round without making a, a fight altering mistake. We've seen guys dominate him with 30 seconds left, finish. Dominate him, 10 seconds left, finish. They make mistakes. They don't have poise. They don't have the skill set necessary to exploit the holes in his game correctly. Fast question. We're going to move on to a new topic. Do we live in a world where Derek Lewis can become UFC heavyweight champion? With the heavyweights in front of him? Uh, yes. Curtis Blades actually was a tough, should have been a tough match for him because his athleticism. And he had enough sense striking to where if he, he would have played it right, I think he could have outstruck Lewis on the feet, and he's a good enough wrestler that if he could get some clean entries, he could take him down. It, his transitions is what killed him. He, he's just not able to transition. In uh, in theory, on paper, Blades should have been probably the toughest matchup for Derrick Lewis, a guy who's got enough size, strength, weight, and athleticism to offset the things that Derrick Lewis likes to do. A lot of guys who grapple Derrick Lewis aren't great wrestlers. Blades had that. But Blades didn't have, like I said, the in-between game, the transition game, and then he didn't have enough IQ to realize, I'm handling this dude on the feet. I don't need to expose myself to strikes to strikes off wrestling until I get him into the position where he's chasing me or he's out of position for a strike and I get an, an easy entry. He didn't have the IQ necessary to do that. So Stipe's got the IQ and he's got the seasoning, but I don't know that Stipe's chin and his recovery are there anymore. I don't know that his ability to wrestle is there anymore. Not for five rounds straight. I don't think he can knock Derek Lewis out. Not without risking getting knocked out himself. John Jones has got is going to have strength. He's going to have conditioning. He'll have you know his length and everything. But once again, John Jones has never been hard to hit. If you're willing to stand in and kind of exchange with him, and you're strong enough to get in some spots and mentally tough enough to hang around in fights, he's he, even at his best, he he got hit with big shots from Rampage or or Machida or uh, Rashad, one or two big shots. So that tells me alone that at some point Derek Lewis can land on him. I know his chin's great. I don't know that it's that great. And once again, Francis Ngannou, as good as he is, and he's probably the better athlete, the fact of the matter is Francis' whole game is counters. And he's a very safety-first fighter when it comes to that. And Derek Lewis can play that game. And Derek Lewis is at least willing to take chances. Ngannou's not. Ngannou doesn't really take chances, not against the bigger hitters. He's, he's not willing to take those chances. And if he's not willing to take chances, it's very likely he could just lose a decision to um, Lewis just off the fact that Lewis is going to explode and be a little bit more aggressive. So the three biggest roadblocks to him, or four biggest roadblocks to him getting a title, all of them are beatable as far as his physical tools and his skill set, and he's already beaten one of them. So I, I think it's possible. I don't know if it's likely, but it's very possible. Okay. All right. All right. Let's talk about the co-main event because we had Yana Kuniskaya defeating, um, what's her name, Caitlin Vieira. And what was a pretty interesting fight? I don't think 
a lot of people had it going this way. I thought people were picking Vieira coming into this fight here. But what are your thoughts about this? Because it, the Bantamweight division isn't deep, but they're still, like, there's... It doesn't seem like this was enough for Kuniskaya to be considered a top contender against Amanda Nunez. Do you think this fight was enough to get her a title shot, or does she still have work to do? Um, first, first of all, I don't think it was enough. I mean, in her in her um, bantamweight run, this win this win's a big win. But we have to remember, um, Kellen Vieira, since she's come back, has been knocked out by Irina Aldana. You know, I mean, whether you say lucky punch, blah, 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 whatever. The fact, the fact of the matter, she was knocked out cold by Irene Aldana, who's, who got exposed by um, Holly Holm and had also lost to Raquel Pennington. And then she beat, uh, I can't say this girl's name right. Let me look it up. Julie, Julizia Stolyrenko. She beat that girl's from Invicta, and that girl is at best a mediocre bantamweight. She beat Marion Renault. Middle of the pack bantamweight, Leah Landsberg, middle of the pack bantamweight, and she lost to Aspen Ladd, and she lost to Cyborg. And you know, so she she hasn't consistently put wins against the elite people in the division. Every time she's faced more of an elite physical talent or a fighter who's an elite skill set, she hasn't done great. And that's been in the UFC and outside the UFC. These are two good wins, but I don't know that it's any better than the wins that. Juliana Pena's had, you know, Juliana Pena's win over Sarah McMahon is better than anything that um, Yana Kuniskaya has done. You know, Juliana Pena's win over Nico Montano is pretty much better than, as far as skill-wise, in the level of opponent, it's pretty much better than anything Yana Kuniskaya has done. So to me, Juliana Pena, who's fighting Holly Holm, she beats her, she's getting a title shot. She's clearly ahead. Um, the win over Vera is a big win, though, because... As I said, Kuniskaya tends to fold against fighters who have uh, advantages as far as physicality and athleticism. And in this fight, she was able to exploit Ketlin's stunningly bad cage IQ and, and win a fight that she was in favor to win. So this is a big feather in her cap. This gives her some ground, but I think she needs to win at least one, possibly two more fights before she can say something. Now, she beats Jermaine Durandamy, we might have a discussion. She can beat a, I don't know who else she has to beat at Bantamweight. It would give her a would justify her move forward. Maybe a Raquel Pennington, Raquel, yeah, Rocky Pennington. She'd have to be somebody like that. Her or or um, Juliana Pena. I mean, maybe Irene Aldana might help her, but for the most part, she'd have to win at least two more fights before she'd be considered a legitimate bantamweight contender for title. Yeah, I can agree with that. Uh, I saw something pretty interesting that. It was an argument that Vieira should move up to 45 and demand a title shot there because there's no division there at all. That's almost a smarter way to do it. But you can tell the UFC is trying to build uh, Danielle Wolf into a title contender. Uh, did you see who she's fighting next? She has to go up against Felicia Spencer. Well, yeah, I think they're thinking that maybe, I mean, Felicia Spencer, in theory, should be a tough matchup because she's a finisher on the ground and she's got some grappling chops and Wolf doesn't really have any. But after that beating that she took against Amanda Nunes, you have to wonder what she has left. I mean, she took, that means she took a beating against Cyborg. I think she had a fight in between that she won. And then she took a five-round beating. She took a three-round beating against Cyborg and a five-round, four-round beating against Amanda Nunes. Pretty much almost back-to-back. There's a price to pay for that. Didn't she submit uh, Megan Anderson in between that, I think? Uh. I think she submitted Megan Anderson first and then got cyborg. Okay, okay, all right. But I just well, I wanted to also say um, for Vera, this fight was surprising. It was like the Julia Avia fight where she fought Sajar Eubanks. In the first round, you saw Ketlin was a better athlete. You saw her kind of dominating grappling exchanges and, and kind of bullying Yana Kudaskaya in, in clinches and in striking exchanges. And then for some reason, when she got taken down, and I, I'm, I'm understanding, I said it before, Yana Kuzuskaya is tricky, she's experienced, she's a skill fighter, she's evolved to a certain degree. But it's almost like Vera was accepting being on her back and she was hunting for submissions. And I get hunting for submissions because if you, you know, you're a grappler, if you're on your back, you don't just give up position and, and, or try to tie him up, you try, try to look for a finish. But in a sport where you're consistently known for Losing in, a, in an organization, you lose rounds for being on the bottom unless you're able to finish. 
I don't mind you looking for submission, but why aren't you looking for submissions that could lead to sweeps or reversals? Or worst case scenario, just power out of the position and risk getting submitted. Because by just laying on your back and letting a fighter who's for all intents and purposes, smaller and weaker than you, control you and chip you up with elbows and short punches, you're telling a story to the judges. You're saying, I can't get up. You're saying, I can't finish her. I can't get up. And she can take her time and basically chip me up on the ground. You're you're giving away a round that doesn't need to be given around, given away. She gets back to her feet and forces an exchange. She probably wins that round. Instead, she plays her guard off her back, submissions off her back, and loses the round that she really didn't have to lose. And I think that was an egregious error on her part to think that she could do that. I think it was an egregious error on her team to not be like, hey, you lost this round. You need to come guns blazing. Or, or better yet, if she takes you down, just get back up. I understand it's not that simple, but I don't think they were telling her the right things in the corner. I think they're like, oh, you were threatening a submission, so you clearly won the round. No, that's not how it works a lot of times. If you don't get the submission, they don't give you credit for almost submissions. They don't give you credit for halfway submissions. You get credit for halfway strikes or unclean strikes landing if you throw enough. You don't get credit for a bunch of submissions that don't either get you in a better position or finish. And she didn't do either with hers. Good stuff there, sir. Um, I appreciate that breakdown. Is there anything else in this card that stood out from, from you for you? Or should we move on to this weekend's main event? Uh, the only other thing I would have said stood out to me was, oh, yeah, um, pretty much I, I would say the um, emergence of a new star in a women's flyweight, Casey O'Neill. She defeated um, Shayna Dobson. Dobson hasn't been the greatest fighter, but she had been showing some growth after being with, I think, Team Elevation. And uh, unfortunately, after a big win she got over Maria Agapova, they put her in with a girl who's making her debut, and, and she lost. And I can't imagine that Shayna Dobson isn't close to getting her pink slip. She's a fighter who has great physical tools and punching power and physicality, but she's so raw that she needs time. And unfortunately, when you get pushed to the UFC, they don't have time to slowly move you along, especially in these thin women's divisions. They just keep throwing you in. And I think it's done her a disservice. And I hope that if she gets to stay on, I hope she gets to take a step back as far as our position. And if she doesn't, I hope they put her in an organization where she can really learn her craft so that she can make these developments better and, and take and take some steps forward, kind of like Angela Hill did, take some steps forward in her career. And as far as Casey O'Neill, um, great win. Showed physicality, showed athleticism, showed durability, showed punching power. And um, I was very impressed. I, I didn't know who she was, but I know I know for sure who she is now. And I, I think she has some potential to really do some things in the division. Good stuff there, sir. I appreciate your analysis on that. I wouldn't have looked at that that way. Uh, let's talk about the main event for Saturday. We have Jerzino Rosenstruck against Surreal Gan. And for me, the real question around this is, is Gagne a real threat at heavyweight? We've seen him kind of develop. I think this is maybe, I can't, I've, I've seen some of his previous fights, but this is his first main event within the UFC. And is this a, is this a coming out moment for him? Or is he going to get pushed back down? the heavyweight ranking right now because I think he's in a position where if he picks up a win he'll have a lot of momentum behind him because heavyweight is thin when it comes to new contenders they're consistently trying to find ways to get new names to the front of the line and this is his opportunity here uh, Rosenstruck was supposed to be that guy who was kind of on that way when he knocked out um, Alistair Overeem and he ran into Nganu so is Guy someone we should really keep our eye out on is this going to be his come out coming out moment on Saturday well, yes and no. I, I think we don't know a lot about him. I mean, everybody talks about his kickboxing background. I've been try- I've been trying to understand like how good a kickboxer he is. I haven't really been able to find anything that tells me clearly that he was a world class striker. You know, just like Stephen Thompson is a world class striker, but when they talk about his kickboxing record, it, it's kind of more smoke and mirrors. It's not in any of the recognized bigger events, whether it's Muay Thai or. Uh, K1 or um, anything like that as far as those brands of kickboxing which are considered elite. I don't I don't know how truly exceptional and dynamic and great that uh, that Cyril Gane's striking really is or he is the fighter. I know he's a great athlete. I know he's got fast hands. I don't think I think he kicks harder than he punches. I know that sounds common, but people think of him as some kind of power puncher and he throws a lot and he hit, lands guys a lot, but he doesn't really crush guys with his power. 
he just kind of hits them and overwhelms them with volume. Um, the biggest, the reason this is plus warm is because win or lose, Rosenstruck is a legit guy. Rosenstruck is a legit fighter who's beaten, who's, who's been in tough in the UFC, who's faced adversity and overcome it, and for the most part has had a winning record during his time at UFC over a various level of opponents. Um, Alan Crowder, Junior Albini. Junior Albini isn't great, but he's a tough, durable, fairly expensive, fairly, fairly durable, uh, fairly experienced um, well, heavyweight who at one point people thought was going to be a contender in the division. Of course, Andre Arvlowski, as fragile as he's been, has still been able to put three, four, five win streaks together. So you can't really dismiss a win over him. Alistair Overeem, once again, has been one of the better heavyweights overall in the world and during his time in the UFC, and that was a clean win. The Ngannou loss, that was just a matter of Ngannou's power and athleticism. Ngannou wasn't really throwing clean. He just overwhelmed them, being a bigger, stronger, better athlete. And the win over Junior DeSantos was, a, was at least a fairly quality win. Gane is basically having this way. He hasn't been in any fights in the UFC. He's been in one-way assaults. He's basically assaulted guys. No guy has pushed back. No guy has put him in any bad position. No guy has really pressured him. I don't know what he's going to do when a guy, if a guy can take his shot and fire back or when he presses the guy, if the guy presses him back. We don't know because everybody he's faced, the minute he's put hands on him, the minute he's put feet on him, they've essentially folded up. So this is going to be his first test. This is going to be his first actual fight where he's not just going to have it be one-way traffic. So if he wins, it shows that maybe he has a little bit something more than we thought. But even if he loses, if he can perform well in the loss, it lets us know that he's not a mirage, but he's actually a legitimate fighter, not a front runner who's just a great athlete. Because so far I see a great athlete with decent skills. I haven't seen a fighter yet. I, I won't see what you are as a fighter until I start seeing you getting punched in the face back. I see you getting kicked in the leg back. When I see you take someone down, they get up. I have to see you go through some adversity, and, and he hasn't faced a second of adversity in any fight he's been in the UFC. So he's, to me, a no, an unknown quantity. What if uh, Jarzino wins, though? How far is he out of the title picture still? Uh, he's not far. I mean, legitimately, the, we've had this discussion before. The best thing, the best and worst thing about heavyweight is this. The best thing is you, you can get to the front of the line very quickly. The worst thing is you can get to the front of the line very quickly. You don't have time to season your game, to establish an identity or develop your, your game because there's such a gap between the elite heavyweights and the mediocre ones. You don't get enough time in the cage to really learn how to operate, especially in bad positions. Jared Rogerstruck has at least had to face some opposition. Against Overeem, he was losing. That fight was done. He had to pull it out in the last second. Against um, Junior DeSantos, Junior DeSantos came out light on his toes, was able to do some work. It was a 50-50 round. Maybe Junior won it. Maybe he won it. But he had to work through some things. He had to take some heat. So he's established that he can, he, if you push him, he can push back. And he's got some big wins. Um, I think if he wins this fight, they might put him in against Derek Lewis. You know, Lewis probably won't get the title fight right away. Lewis is calling for Overeem. I can't imagine the UFC wants to waste Overeem on Lewis because if Overeem beats Lewis, all that momentum Lewis built is going to be gone. It'd be better to have him fight the guy who's on a two-fight winning streak who beat Overeem, have him and Derek Lewis fight. That, that fight makes more sense. You know, you have two guys who are fairly established, two big, aggressive-style guys who look intimidating. You can kind of sell that. You can sell that. You can sell that fight. It's a little bit harder to sell Derek Lewis over him. I mean, I don't really want to see that at this point. I guess they could do it, but I think if if he gets past um if he gets past this fight, they might put him in with Derek Lewis. Um, maybe put him in with Volkov, maybe. But um, he's probably like a fight or two away from a title shot in the heavyweight division. You're never more than a fight or two, to be quite honest. So he's probably a fight or two if Gane wins. I'd say he's still three fights, depending on how he wins it. There's just too many questions about him as a fighter. There's too many questions for me to say he, he, he leapfrogs anybody. His resume is super thin. Rosenstruck has name wins on his, his ledger. Um, the only name, name that Gagne has is Junior DeSantos, but that's a Junior DeSantos who already got knocked out by Rosenstruck and, and knocked out by Blades. It's not, the same, it's not the same quality of fighter that those guys beat. How do you think that fight would play out, the Derek, uh, Derek Lewis versus um, Jerzino Rosenstruck? How do you think? How do you see that fight going? Um, 
I think it goes just like every other Derek Lewis fight. I think Rosenstruck has an advantage because he's not a wrestler. And um, as much as Derek Lewis lands big bombs on the feet, you can navigate that if you're smart enough. If you're smart enough and you, and you can handle yourself under duress, you can navigate that. Because his striking is not very good, and he's not much of an offensive threat as a wrestler either. So if you can take a shot pretty well, and you're and you got you're defensively responsible, and you're offensively pretty efficient, you can you can get to him. Lesser guys have. Um, so I think it would look very much like any Derrick Lewis fight. He might get outworked. He might get chopped up. He might turn it around late, or he might just lose a an exciting fight, back and forth fight by knockout. It, it just depends on can the guy. Can someone fight? Can Rosenstruck fight a clean fight for three rounds, or does he get over? Does he get greedy? Does he overcommit and walk into something big against Derrick Lewis? Same as anybody else, but it'd be a good fight. I mean, a fight against Derrick Lewis and Gagne would be a good fight, but Derrick Lewis isn't going to take two steps to back to fight Cyril Gagne. That's not going to happen. Is there anything else from Saturday's card that stands out to you? I'm looking um, forward to seeing um, Ashley or Ashley goodness. Ashley Yoder and Angela Hill, and then there's the um, there's another fight I listed too as well. But what is standing out to you? I'm really concerned about um, Angela Hill. Like I said before, I think she should be a superstar. She's got charisma. She's got an exciting style. She's very talented, but she just has a really hard time putting fights together. And um, I, I'm just, I mean, I don't think Ashley Yoder should beat her. I really don't. But if Ashley Yoder beats her, this is this is kind of a low point for her in her career. For the most part, she's, she's only lost to a certain caliber of opponent, and Ashley Yoder is way far below that. So if she loses to Ashley Yoder, I, I, I don't think they will cut her, but I think her, I think her credibility as a fighter would take a big hit. I think certain losses are explainable or acceptable. A loss to Ashley Yoder is, it, is neither one of those. So that's a must win for her. Ashley Yoder loses. It doesn't really affect her. She is who she is at this point. And to be honest, she's still developing. And the UFC seems to have some belief in her that she can be more than she, she is. But a loss to Ange- Angela Hill, a loss for her, is, I think, I think it's pretty devastating, to be quite honest. I, th- I think it'd be pretty devastating if she loses this fight. True. I definitely agree with that. Uh, is there anything else that catches your eye on this card here? Uh, I'm kind of interested in the the Munoz Jimmy Rivera fight. Just see what each guy has left. Jimmy Rivera seemed to have taken a couple steps backwards in the past couple years, so the fight isn't as attractive as it as it could have been or should have been. But um, I'm interested to see what he has left, and interested to see what if Pedro Munoz can come back from that loss to Frankie Edgar. I mean, that loss really hurt him. I mean, he could have been the one who fought Corey Sanhagen, and he could have been the one with an argument for a potential title fight. But losing to uh, Frankie Frankie Edgar kind of threw that all back, and now he's at the back of the line. If he loses this fight, he's he's out of the line. I mean, Jimmy Rivera is just barely there himself. But if if, Pe- if Pedro has more to lose in this fight than Jimmy Rivera, Pedro's still in the in the contender, the the fringe contender talk. This win kind of moves him a step forward. But a loss to Jimmy Rivera is is pretty much going to take him out of the line, and uh, might be a little bit of an indictment that maybe he 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 can't compete at this level as much as I like Jimmy Rivera. He's he's had a rough go in the past year or so, so I'm very interested in seeing how that fight goes. True, I definitely agree with that. I was actually looking at people tweeting, talking about Jimmy Rivera and the tear he was on, but um, man, like that loss to Marlon Morales really kind of set him back because he's been three and or two and three since then. So yeah, I definitely agree with you on that because he was on he's, quite he's, a tear. He's a very he's a very plan A kind of guy. He's a guy. His his team does a great job scouting you. And as long as, like they say in football, as long as everything's on script, he's world class. But if a guy makes an adjustment, and the guys he was beating, they couldn't adjust. Thomas Savannah can't adjust. Uri Faber, that dude, never been an adjustment that he didn't know. Or Marcus Bramage, all those guys couldn't adjust. When he started facing guys with dimensions to their skill set, Marlon Marais, Aljamain Sterling, Peter Yan, he started losing, and he started losing badly. So if Pedro's gotten better, and he has some tricks up his sleeves, it's a guaranteed win because Jimmy Rivera is only as good as his plan A is. Once his plan A is not working, neither is he. Well, I can definitely agree with that. That's some good um, thoughts there, Schwann. Let's move on to boxing and let's look back before we look forward because Adrian Broner returned on 
last Saturday, and it seems like a lot of people weren't too impressed with his performance and the judging that ended up in his favor. Shawan, what were some of your thoughts about that fight, and do you think he, well, of course he's at a different place in his career right now, but what do you think his ceiling is now at this point upon his return? Well, the reason people have an issue with the fight isn't, the fight was close, but the reason people have an issue with the fight is because the scorecards, the way the scorecards read, is basically telling you that that guy had no chance of winning the fight. No, no matter what he did, he was not going to win. And that having that illusion taken away from you, the illusion that he had a chance to win, having that taken away actually hurt Agent Broner's case. I will agree that this guy was better than they thought he was. He had faster hands. But we need to remember something about Adrian Broner. Adrian Broner has never been the most disciplined person in his own self. You read the articles. You, you've seen the news reports. Drinking, trying to be a rap artist, partying all night, multiple women, whatever he's doing, right? So for 25 months, for the better part of 25 months, let's say 18, 19 months, maybe even longer, 20 months, he's just been drinking, partying, staying up late, running the streets, spending money, blowing money, spending time in jail. The last, not even the last six months, let's say 21 months, the last five and a half months, he's actually been focused on being in shape and trying to get back into boxing. There's no way you take 25 months off of anything and come and not, don't train, don't do anything, 25 months and come back in and, and think you're going to be a world beater and think you're going to look dynamic. It's just not going to happen. I don't, I don't know why anybody would assume anything otherwise. That's not the norm. Maybe for the elite guys, the elite of the elite, you can do that. But for you to totally quit a sport altogether and not train, but three months and you're 40, 50 pounds out of weight and you've been in jail for weeks at a time, who the hell thinks you're going to look world-class? I didn't expect him to look world-class. I expected him to have his timing off, his placement off, and to get out work to a degree. And he did. I would say that Santiago put up a good fight. I would say that it was a close fight. It could have went either way to me. But the thing that I noticed, and I, I said this on Twitter, Broner landed the cleaner shots. Broner landed the harder shots. And that counter left hook he threw, every time he threw it, it landed. His jab, every time he threw it, it landed. You can't have two punches that land every single time they hit. And every time they hit, they either he almost dropped the guy, and he was rocking the guy every time he hit him, and he was landing cleaner shots. I appreciate volume. I like it. I like outworking somebody. But I can't give you a fight you're winning. When, yeah, you're throwing more volume, but that guy is hurting you. And the guy's backing you up and backing you off when he hits you. I, I can't go with it. The damage is telling me a different story. If he was landing clean, I'd go with that. But he wasn't landing clean. Some of them were clean. Some of them were kind of off the shoulder, off the forearms. They weren't clean quality shots. I can't give him credit for that unless you completely overwhelm somebody. Adrian Broner wasn't overwhelmed. Was he outworked? Yeah. But the other guy was outpowered and physically outclassed. So it was a close fight, but I thought Adrian won. With me, I think Adrian needs to stay active. And if he looks the same way another fight from now, well, now we might have an issue. But the thing about it is I still think he has potential to at least he's got a big enough name. He'll get another title shot. He's got a big enough name. People are going to say he's not the same fighter. He may not be. But he still attracts people. He still draws interest. People still care about what happens to him. He's going to – if he all he has to do is put two or three wins together, title fights are going to come because the controversy follows him. And people love controversy, whether to see him win because they're fans or, or to spit on him because he lost. He's always going to demand a certain certain amount of respect. Now, I know the numbers weren't great for this, but if you have any, if you haven't had your head under the rock, you you know a fight of the year type fight was happening on another bigger network, and that impacted his numbers because he's fighting a nobody. He's fighting a guy nobody knows, and he's coming off of twenty five months off. But trust me, Adrian Joner still moves the needle. He's still a good enough fighter that he can give anybody a good four to six rounds of tough, tough fights. And unless you're one of the better fighters in the division, I'm going to say that he beats most guys. I don't think he his his ceiling is sky high. I don't. I think his days of being elite probably are past, but his days of being able to flirt with greatness here and there in spots, I think he's fully capable of it. The divisions he's trying to compete in aren't full of killers. He can put two or three or three or five wins together. It's just a matter of being matched appropriately and him staying on the train and moving in the right direction as far as his conditioning, his activity, and his um, his technique and his boxing. I still think it's his potential. I still think he'll make money. I still think he'll get move up in the rankings. Now, will he be world champion? That's a bit of a stretch. I can't say that anymore. But will he get an opportunity to be world champion? Oh, there's like a million titles in boxing. There's going to be someone who's willing to give him a sanctioning fee to, to get, get him a title shot. 
Is still there? Sorry about that, Shawan. I was yeah, talking no myself on mute. But let's talk about the big fight this weekend. I say big in air quotes because it's not necessarily a big from expectations of, of buy rates standpoint or a big on a anticipation standpoint, but it's big because it's Canelo Alvarez and he's fighting on Saturday. He's fighting, uh, let me pull the guy's name up again. He's fighting Anvi Yili Deram. I don't know how to say this guy's name to save my life, but he is fighting on Saturday and Canelo, you know, he's been pretty active. This is like his, his, but he last fought, I think like two or three months ago. So, what are you expecting this fight here? Does his opponent has tell tell us about his opponent first and foremost because most people really won't know who he is. Who is this guy? Um, he's basically for all intents and purposes, he's 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 kind of a journeyman. I mean, he has some he he's not a terrible fighter. He's fairly durable. He's got a decent skill set. He's competed at a at a decent level, but he's he's not anywhere near an elite fighter in physical tools, technical skills, or accomplishment. He's he's really just a He's really just more of a, uh, I guess, a slightly above average type fighter. You know, I mean, you look down his list of guys, all the best guys he's faced, he's lost. Chris Eubank Jr. stopped him. Anthony Durrell beat him by decision. He doesn't have a lot of wins over quality, world-ranked type opponent. He's, he's just fairly limited. But like I said, he's experienced, he's fairly tough, and he's got a decent skill set. And against a lesser fighter, like a mid-car fighter, or, or maybe a champion who's a flawed limited boxer, he'd probably be able to give them good rounds. He'd probably be able to overachieve and maybe compete. The thing is, he's facing, if not the pound-for-pound best fighter, one of the top three pound-for-pound best fighters. Guy who's turned himself into one of the best counterpunchers, probably no worse than the second-best defensive fighter, and no worse than the second-best all-round fighter in the world. Um, It's going to be hard for him to find any aspect of the fight where he can really control it he doesn't punch incredibly hard he's not incredibly slick as a boxer he's not super busy as far as his volume he's not super technical he's he's pretty much just good to pretty good in every single aspect of boxing and this is for all intents and purposes this is a stay busy fight for canelo canelo fights like an old school guy he fights big fights but in between big fights he fights guys so he's he fights guys who are who have names or at higher weights to keep him busy because they know that too much time out of the ring erodes your skills. It erodes your timing, erodes your conditioning, it erodes your defensive awareness, your offensive efficiency. He can't afford that. There's too many, too much money on the table. So what he does is he makes sure that he stays busy with lesser fighters that just for, force him to go through a camp, force him to work on technique, force him to watch film. So every one of his tools is as sharp as possible. And he can also make money in between the big fights. Because these guys are waiting on Canelo, so they'll wait a year. They'll take a fight and not fight for six other months waiting for Canelo. Canelo isn't giving anybody that kind of advantage. He is constantly staying busy, so he is razor sharp coming into every fight. This is just another fight for him to stay sharp in, to um, make sure his tools are ready, and to prepare him. This the, the preparation he's doing for this fight isn't really for this fight. It's for his next fight against Billy Joe Saunders. So when he fights Billy Joe Saunders, he'll have basically had two camps in a row He'll be razor sharp, top condition, ready to face one of the better boxers in the world. This guy is just what's standing in between that. Now, of course, Canelo's not going to overlook him, but on paper and based on the actual accomplishment, what I've seen, this this shouldn't be competitive by any nature. It just really comes down to how much punishment this guy takes. If he can take punishment and he can be extra physical, we might have something. But, I mean, he struggled with Anthony Durrell. And outside of just being maybe bigger, then Canelo Alvarez, Anthony Durrell is in no shape, form, or fashion a better IQ fighter, a better defensive fighter, a better offensive fighter, better counter fighter, or a smarter fighter than Canelo. So like they say, there's levels to this. Canelo's a couple levels above. This should be a fairly uneventful fight unless something goes terribly, terribly, terribly wrong for Canelo. If something was to go terribly wrong, how badly would that hurt Canelo's stock? Well, I mean, if he gets injured or something, it doesn't hurt his stock. Like, if he gets hurt and twists the knee and it's some kind of weird decision, it won't hurt his stock because everybody will see what's happening. The only thing that hurts his stock is if he's cleanly outboxed or if he's basically just knocked out. 
Um, that's the only thing that would hurt his stock. Anything else, a sluggish performance. I mean, people will ask questions. People will wonder. But that's just going to build a more interest for his next fight. Has, has Canelo gone too far? Has he hit the wall? Has he hit the limits of his skills? As long as he doesn't lose, nothing is going to do more harm than if he loses. Same thing with Floyd Mayweather. He can be competitive. It can be tight. It can be whatever. He could even take some punishment. The guy could even win three or four rounds. As long as he doesn't lose, the truck keeps on going. Because the only loss he has right now is Floyd Mayweather, who some people consider the best boxer of all time, who's undefeated. So as long as Canelo doesn't lose, the money doesn't get messed up, there's no problems. He's still calling shots, which is another reason why he works so hard. He understands what to stay. He can't have any slip-ups. He can't have any back steps. He can't have any, any more losses. It has to be wins, and the truck has to keep going if he wants to maintain his position of bargaining power, and support in the fan with the with the Mexican fans and the fans worldwide. Good stuff there, sir. Good stuff at all. Uh, um, I, I wanted to mention his his, his uh stablemate, um Jose Valdez. He fought on ESPN and uh I don't know if you saw the fight, but it was probably the knockout of the year in boxing. It was worse than the uh Tank Davis knockout over um Leo Santa Cruz. It was I think the tenth round. And he was fighting Miguel Burchelt. Burchelt was chasing him. He ducked, came over, landed a left hand. And when I tell you, like, all the MMA fighters I know, all the boxers I know were texting me and, and hitting me on WhatsApp. And they were like, I think he might have killed that man. Like, I literally think he is dead. More than one person thought that guy was dead. They thought fight was done. He just killed a man in the ring. What are they going to tell his family? And when he started moving, everybody was in shock. Like, people who've been in cages, been in wars and boxing, People won, won world championships, said their draws, hit the floor, and they were stunned, and they thought this dude was dead. They thought it was over. That's how vicious the knockout was. I, I, look it up yourself. It, it was which, ugly. Which, which one are you talking about? Are you talking about the black guy that got knocked out or the the uh, Latino guy? Uh, the Latino guy was Valdez versus Burchell. Yeah, okay. I saw that. I saw that. I saw that one, too. Yeah, that was the, – the thing that scared me the most is, like, the way – it looked like he got hit in the face with like a brick or something like that. And like the vibe, like the way his head shakes before he goes down, no, it was just scary all around. Yeah. The one thing about without having the fans there, you lose some of that energy and that excitement. But it's like when you, I mean, you sparred in MMA gym before. So you understand, you know, it's quiet in there. So when you land a really good shot, you just can hear it, you know? But most of the time when there's fighting, you can't really hear, even with the microphones, you can't hear it because there's chattering, there's noise, there's whoever's talking. But when the when the gym or the auditorium is empty like that and, and guys land knockout punches, it's that sickening kind of like sound. It's like, it, it's just like you close your eyes and you hear it and you're like, why do I even subject myself to this abuse? Like, what the hell am I thinking? Because I saw that knockout. I was like, dude, I can't believe I used to spar pro box. Like that could happen to me. And I wouldn't. I wasn't getting paid millions. That was just my my idea of a good time. And clearly, I had problems back then because that is nobody's idea of a good time. But um, it was a knockout of the year. It was a very important fight. Um, Oscar Valdez. He's a uh, stablemate of Canelo. Long story short, he was a fighter who kind of hit his limit. He was a very offensive based fighter who got in a lot of brawls. His his management team took him over to Canelo's trainer, the Renosos. And since then, they've been slowly integrating a more technical more defensively sound, counter-based style. And um, this is probably one of their better reclamation pro pro projects. And he did, wasn't a total failure, but he basically went from an educated brawler to a technical boxer. And um, it's another example of how good Canelo and his team are because Ryan Garcia had one of the big knockouts. He, his got, he came over to the Reynosos. They coached him up and turned him into a legitimate world-class fighter. Ho um, Valdez was a world-class fighter, but he's more of a brawler. They turned him into a world-class boxer, and he fought a guy who usually comes in heavy, has huge physical advantages. He took it to him. He aggressively outboxed him, and he basically beat him from pillar to post from round one to essentially round 10, and he put a punctuation mark by giving one of the best knockouts of the year and probably one of the top 10 knockouts I've ever seen in boxing, and I watch a lot of boxing. That was sickening to watch, but he stamped himself as a New, as a champion in that division, and now the whole world's open to Now he's got all the big-name, high-profile guys calling him out. With that kind of win on that kind of platform, that's a that's a fight that 
makes your career and moves you to another category as far as a fighter. So it was a big win for um, not just him, but for Canelo's coaches and for Canelo himself, who invests a lot of his time developing the fighters himself, getting in the ring with them, advising them, training with them to help them be the best versions of themselves they can be. And if Canelo wins tomorrow or this weekend, that's three big, three, four big wins in a row. You're looking at the trainer of the year by far, easily. Three fighters in three different weight classes, dominating wins against the best of opposition they've ever faced. So um, it was just a great win for the Reynosos, great win for Canelo, great winner, win for uh, Oscar, for Valdez. Good stuff there, sir. Uh, we have one more uh, topic group to talk about, just other stuff going on in combat sports. And the first thing is Sage Northcutt, you know, he's back fighting. He was just announced for a welterweight fight against Shinya Aoki. And I don't expect much from Sage. I don't expect much from Shinya at this point in his career. I mean, I think he it might still be one half of the tag team champions over in Japan and DDT Pro. I think he still might be. I'm not sure. I haven't looked in a while. But what do you expect to see from Sage Northcutt coming back after he got his face destroyed uh, in his uh, one UFC debut? Well, I mean, at least this fight stylistically should have some favors. Um, I expect him to be the same guy he's always been. Pretty low volume of the strikes, a great athlete using his physicality to kind of dictate pace and hopefully get a knockout. Uh, 170 is not good for Yoki. Yoki's never been very durable or really physical, especially with guys who can defend and, and punish him. Um, Sage isn't great, but Sage hits pretty hard. He's fairly dynamic athletically. And he's pretty strong. So this should, I would think this would be a win for him. I don't know why they're even having this fight. I'm guessing they're trying to see what Sage has left and try to work him slowly back into contention or activity in their organization. Um, when they set him up with that first fight, that was just a bad matchup. I don't know why he accepted it. His team failed him. The organization, basically, they set him up to be hurt like that. It was a terrible fight. I don't know who agreed to it. I don't know why they agreed to it, but it was an egregious mistake on everybody involved. The organization, his team, and Sage himself should have said, no, we need somebody else for that fight. But um, I'm thinking they're trying to see if they can get their investment back in and hopefully have him beat Aoki and then kind of move him up slowly, work him back into regular activity, and then hopefully maybe position him to be a fringe contender, maybe a possible legitimate contender for a title in, in their organization. Do you think that we live, live in a world where Northcutt can keep the fight off the ground long enough to not get his leg ripped off? I mean, Aoki, to me, has seemed fairly fragile as far as taking abuse. I've never really seen him take punishment and handle it very well. And I can't imagine that at this stage he's in his prime as far as his athleticism. I mean, he'll still be an elite grappler as far as MMA goes for as long as it goes. But, I mean, if, sir, if, if, if he can just land one or two good shots, that should essentially win the fight, I would think. If he can just stay away and just chop away at his leg. I mean, you know Aoki's going to be lunging for everything, trying to find a leg or trying to find an ankle or something of that nature. I mean, Sage really just has to get in one position and, and, and land clean, and that should be it. I, I want to say that Sage is going to win this fight. I want to say he's going to win this fight, and it should be pretty handily. But um, I don't know where he's at mentally, and I don't, I don't know where he's at technically either. I guess it's possible he loses it, but I'm just going to say Sage wins it, and uh, they, they start building back up as a legitimate contender. So last thing we want to talk about here is um, Michael Chandler. You know, he's now a champion of Black history. Did you see the promo on Saturday, Sean? I started to watch it, and I said, you know, I just need to stop this. I don't need to watch this any further. <laughs> so I didn't see it live. Um, I was away from the television. Actually, I, what was I doing on Saturday? I don't even remember. But a friend texted me and asked me if I saw it. So I was like, this is what, I guess this is what everyone's been talking about, because my brothers were watching the fights, and they were texting about it back and forth in our group chat. And I kind of saw their conversation, and I didn't pay it much attention. But when my other friend texted me and asked me if I saw it, I made it a point to go and watch. And this is another one of those moments where it's embarrassing to be an MMA fan. And I say that with all due respect to Michael Chandler. This is not about him. You know, he's doing he, he's doing great by this child, adopting him, making sure he has a home, roof over his head, food on the table. He's doing exceptional work in that space. 
But that does not make him a topic of discussion when it comes to Black history, period. Like, there's no debate around that. If they wanted to use this as a promo to build up the story behind Michael Chandler heading into his next fight, I'm for that all day, every day. But you do not package this and tell sports fans, viewers, MMA fans that this is a story about Black history. It completely denigrates all the men and women of who are who fit within that category on your roster, who work in your organization. It denigrates all of them. It's so it's totally disrespectful. It's disrespectful to all the fans who watch their content, who spend their hard-earned money on their content. And it's so unfortunate that that promotion, that organization could not look across this roster. I think I was reading somewhere that five of the last six events have had at least one or have, have had at least one black person in the main or co-main e- event, if not more. Looking across the entire gamut of the roster, they could not pick out a Tyron Woodley who's doing work in Ferguson, Missouri. They couldn't talk about an Angela Hill. They couldn't talk about a Kamara Usman, Israel Adesanya. They couldn't talk about even Daniel Cormier with him being um, a high school coach and what that means to those kids and what, what he is a, a positive uh, example for them. They couldn't pick out anyone else to talk about Black history, but they put a white man in front of the public and made it about him, a white man. There's so many different things wrong with that, but at the end of the day, it comes down to this being this industry and this organization does not understand their African-American demographic, does not understand their Black demographic in any way, shape, or form. It, and it almost has, it's almost getting to a point where it's not only do they not understand that space, they don't have an intention to. Because this does not happen with the right voices in the room. And they have uh, someone who's high-ranking in PR who is a Black woman. And I want to know if she saw this before it went out. What did she say about this? This has to go all the way up because people have to see stuff and they have to prove it before it goes out on national television. Everyone who saw this failed and they should be embarrassed for themselves. Well, I don't know. I mean, if black people can speak about black history, why can't a white person? I mean, black people get to say the N word in their songs. Shouldn't everybody be able to say it? <laughs> this is just this is just so comically bad, dude. I think I think Daniel White approves this stuff is a big F you to people who keep telling him that his mouth is gonna get him in trouble. Because nothing goes, nothing goes by without Dana White said, okay, he's too much of a control freak. This doesn't see the light of day if Dana White does not want it to see the light of day. That's what it comes down to. I don't care who else approved it, thought of whatever. It doesn't happen unless Dana White says it's okay. So Dana White said this is okay. He wanted this narrative to be pushed, and it got pushed. I don't know that it, if anybody would have talked it down, if it would have mattered, because I can guarantee you there's been plenty of bad ideas and stuff people have said he shouldn't have said, he shouldn't have endorsed, he shouldn't have been okay with. I'm sure someone said, hey, Dana, don't tell people to go easy on Gina Carano. No, nah, you know what? I think I'm going to tell him to go easy on her. I think I'm going to tell a Jewish person that he shouldn't be offended by what she said. Because what she said, there's nothing wrong with what she said. So the same guy who said that was okay are you really shocked that that, that guy who run, who basically runs this promotion, are you really shocked that that guy let this come out? I'm not. And the UFC fans don't care enough to be upset either. They, they just don't care. You're talking, it's like yelling at a brick wall. You're talking to people who do not care about feelings, who do not care about positions. And I won't say that they're racist. I don't, I don't know these people, so I'm not going to make that assumption. I will say they have prejudice tendencies that allow them to react to the most ridiculous things and underreact to everything else that's done by somebody of a certain certain color. So um, I didn't bother talking to people about it um, because all the all the minorities I know would just be upset. And to be quite honest, some of the white people I know, not that I'm friends with, that I know, had I posed this question to them saying that this is wrong. I'm just afraid of the answer that would come out of their mouth because then it would have been an altercation. There would have been a physical altercation if the wrong thing came out of their mouth. And it's just so very likely the wrong thing was going to come out. So I didn't, even, I didn't even have that discussion with them. You know, I, I attempted to have it with one person. I saw where it was going. I said, I'm not having this conversation with anybody else. 
because there's just too much chance of me having to get in multiple fights in one day and I don't I don't have the time for it. I don't have the energy for it at this point in my life. But um it was bad. But everybody's going to tell you it's not as bad as you thought. You're being too insensitive. You're downplaying what Michael Chandler's doing and what kind of man he is. That's going to be the pushback you get. And it's because they don't get it. And they don't get it because they don't have to. And because they don't have to, they don't care. So as much offense as you take to it, I take to it. And a lot of, I'm not going to say just minorities, white people. There's white people I know who were very offended by it. That's a small segment of MMA fans. And the UFC doesn't need them to make their product or doesn't need them to keep on rolling. So they don't care. If, if they thought it was going to offend a large segment of their fans, they wouldn't do it. But they know it's not going to, so they don't care. And uh, that, that's about it all. Comes down, comes down to bottom line. Doesn't affect their bottom line. So nothing's going to change. And you just have to accept it or you just have to get the hell away from it. But it's not changing. There you go, sir. I mean, I really agree with you. And it was pretty embarrassing to see that for for so many different reasons. But hey, you know, it's, it is it's, it's, kind of, it's women's month next month. They'll probably talk to uh, who's that heavyweight the UFC had? Uh, Greg Hardy. Well, yeah, Greg Hardy will probably be speaking up for the for the rights of all women. So look forward to that. Yeah, it'll be his redemption story. Yeah, but. That's the sad part about MMA, man, because you never know what type of foolishness you're going to get every week. I mean, on can, Monday... Can you, you, can you imagine the speech? I, I support the strength of women. I don't think women are weak. I almost killed one, and she survived, which shows that women are strong and are equals. So, the thing... <laughs> it's, it's, oh, I can't even touch that foolishness. But what I was about to say, you made me completely forget. <laughs> um... Goodness, what I was about to say, I don't even remember. But with that in mind, Shawan, let's kind of close out this weekend, this week's show. Shawan, let's let everybody know what you're working on. Uh, I released an article about camps slash corners, um, just kind of breaking down some of the errors camps make in assessing fighters and preparing fighters, and then it kind of, whether it's watching film, getting sparring, or just figuring out what kind of fighter they have in front of them and how those things impact the fighter's performance, a win or loss, or whether a fighter loses a close fight, or has a career-altering beating taken that ruins them. So I just released that. Michael released that a couple days ago. I've gotten a lot of good feedback on it. And, um, you know, it's, I think it's something important. I think something it's an article you can bring, bring up after every event, because after every event, what's the one question we ask? Should the corner let this go on? How could this guy not be prepared? Why, why does this person have such a bad fight plan? It kind of covers each one of those things. So every card we go through, you can refer back to the article and be like, Hmm, let me think. What, what was the issue here? Oh, they assessed this guy wrong. He, he clearly didn't have the right sparring. Oh, they weren't developing, developing him in between fights. They'd just been working with him in fight camps. That's why he's, he or she's got so many holes in her game plan. So it's just something I think is a reference point that more people need to understand because a lot of people don't work in camps and a lot of people will never be around camps. So they don't, they don't know what goes into it. You know, and I know, but this is kind of like a written down form that they can refer to moving forward when they see a fighter struggling and things to look forward as far as that fighter, as far as that fighter's development. And the other thing I'm working on, I did a, I actually finished it. And I sent to Michael, there's an article, they're going to have the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And I break down two fight scenes from Marvel universes with characters who are going to appear in the Winter Soldier and um, the Falcon. And it's the Winter Soldier versus the Black Widow and Agent Carter. And it's George St. Pierre versus Captain America break down the, both of those fight teams in great detail and I'm hoping that will be out by the 18th of March which will be when that show debuts on Disney Disney Plus is it Disney Plus? Disney Plus uh, I think it is Disney Plus sir but yeah I am covering doing my same stuff for pro wrestling you know usually pro wrestling MMA as much as we really are uh, there's a lot really kind of going on, so we have a lot of content to really cover. But we we stay busy, man. We stay busy, and we do the best that we can here. But with that in mind, man, I'm going to go ahead and close out, as always. Uh, thank you for joining me, Schwan. Thank you for everyone who takes the time to listen to this show and provide us with all that you do. Please be sure to like, share, and subscribe because we need all the support that we can really get. We've been doing this for God knows how many years, coming up on episode 200 next month. So that will be the debut of us doing videos, um, podcasts as well. So be ready to see our 
gorgeous faces for an hour each and every week. Mine for two, probably, because I'm doing wrestling too, but, you know, you all love me. But you can always catch us across multiple channels at MMA Ratings Net, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, uh, all of our podcast channels, MMARatings.net or .com to see our flagship where Adam Martin is covering MMA. I do some writing every now and then. Shawan does as well. But let's go ahead and close it out, Shawan. Thank you again. We'll see you next week. All right. Have a good evening, fellas.